The passage that I would like to call your attention to today can be found in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, picking up where we left off last week. You would turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. Our text for the day will start in 19, but we're actually going to start reading in 11, verse 11, so that we can get the context of the passage. First John chapter 3, starting in verse 11, the apostle writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truths on our hearts. Pray with me. Father, we praise your name for your word this morning. Father, even now as we study the word, I pray that you would give me wisdom. Father, I pray that your spirit would illuminate the scriptures to these eyes that are sitting here today, and that anything unprofitable or unhelpful that would come from my mouth would be forgotten, and that only your word would remain in their hearts as they leave. We pray this all for Christ's sake and his glory. Amen. How do we have assurance that we are saved? Have you ever struggled with assurance? If you have, like most of us, you're not alone. Even when we study church history, we find people, the, the, the greats of the faith that have struggled with assurance of faith. Charles Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Bethann Lloyd-Jones, all of these and many more have struggled with whether or not they were truly Christians. How about you? 
Do you ever struggle with assurance? Do you doubt if you're truly saved? Do you doubt if heaven is your eternal destination? I would gather that most of us do, or have at times. But what do we do when we doubt? How do we have assurance that we are saved? Maybe you were told by a well-meaning pastor at some point that because you had repeated the words of a specific prayer, you could have assurance of eternal life. Maybe you were told to think of your baptism. Maybe you were told to to remember a specific date and how sincere you were. As a people that want to continually reform and conform our minds to God's word, to his scriptures, we have to ask, what does the Bible say about our assurance of faith? Are specific prayers and rituals enough? Well, friend, I want to lay before you today that it is essential that you hear and take to heart what John has to say. Because John tells us how we might have assurance that we are children of God. And he gives us two encouraging assurances of salvation. First, that believers have confidence that they are in the faith because of their genuine love. Their genuine love for the church. And second, believers have confidence that they are in the faith because they keep God's commandments. Now, as we think about 1 John, we'll remember that one of the things John is doing is he is writing to the church in the wake of the, of the leaving of false teachers. These false teachers have come into the church, and they have told the church, hey, you can be a Christian, and you can be saved, and you can have assurance and still walk in sin. You can still walk in the darkness and have the light too. And John is writing to the church to remind them of the foundations of the faith, the basics of Christianity, that true believers walk in the light. As we've talked about, not perfectly. We're still tied to the flesh. We still fail. But all in all, if someone were to take snapshots of your life post-conversion, you would walk in the light. And John uses this ancient rhetoric style called amplification. As Westerners, we like, we like a linear flow of thought. We like this, and because of this, this, this. But John uses something called amplification, and he talks in this circular movement. So we see a lot of the same themes over and over and over, and he uses these contrasting terms, light, dark, love, hate, wisdom, falsehood, obedience, disobedience. And he talks in this circular pattern, all to remind the church how they should live, considering the gift of salvation that they have received. Remember, as Christians, we are not work-based. We are not saying you do these things and you will be accepted. It is because you have been accepted by a holy God, because you have been saved, now live like this. And John gives tests to the church that they might examine their hearts. Remember, the Bible never says, put your faith in a prayer. Paul says to examine yourself to see if you are within the faith. And and John is helpful because he gives us these tests to examine ourselves. John continues to give assurance to true Christians, reminding them who they are in Christ. And he continues to rob assurance from the false Christians, from the cultural Christians, from the ones that are there just because 
for community or, or whatever reasons, but not for Christ. They have not truly accepted Christ. And the first thing John says in this passage is that believers have confidence that they are in the faith because of their genuine love for the church, for God's people. Before we read the passage, we remember, I, I, I read that last week's passage so we'd have context, because John has just finished reminding the church that they are called to love their fellow believers in deed and in truth. Remember, a big thing for this letter is that you can't just walk the walk. Christians, true Christians, also, they can't just talk the talk. they got to walk the walk. I got that backwards, but you knew where I was going. True Christians also walk the walk. Remember, this truth that John is talking about, the this in our passage we're about to read, is that they are to love one another in deed and in truth. Not just verbally, but by their actions. So look with me at verse 19 through 21. By this, by loving one another in deed and truth, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So by loving one another in deed and in truth, by walking this walk, we have confidence that we are in Christ. And then we get to a tricky part of the passage. What does John mean when he says, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts? Well, recent translators, not necessarily Bible translators, but just people reading this passage would say something like, well, if our hearts condemn us, you know what? God's love is greater than our self-condemnation. If your heart condemns you, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it because God loves you anyways. Don't worry about your lovelessness. And that translation fits with our culture. But the problem is, is John was not a 21st century American. John had never read Chicken Soup for the Soul. John's never read The Shack. He's never read Girl, Stop Apologizing. The disciple that Jesus loved was getting this book directly from the creator of the universe The traditional translation, this is what the early church fathers, the Greek fathers, the Latin fathers, and even the reformers would say, is that if our heart condemns us of our sin, well, guess what? God's condemnation is greater because he sees the heart, as John says. In other words, if I look at my meanness towards my brothers and sisters in Christ and I put myself at a level three, John is saying, yeah, well, but you're always going to be a little bit nicer to yourself than what you're really doing, because God sees all of your heart. He sees all of your sin, and you're at a nine. That's what John is saying. If your heart condemns you of your meanness, guess what? God sees it all, and he knows the full extent of your meanness. He knows the full extent of our selfishness. And this passage is a warning against lovelessness towards our fellow believers, and that we as Christians must persuade our hearts That we as Christians must not close our hearts towards our fellow Christians, but love them in deed and truth as well as in word. 
By genuinely loving their fellow believers according to God's commands, their hearts would not condemn them, and then they would have confidence before God. They would have confidence as they pray, as they intercede for their fellow believers, and as they ask God for things. By not closing their hearts to their fellow believers, they would have confidence when coming before that holy God that we have already sang about this morning. Instead of lovelessness, believers are called to desire the good of their brothers and sisters. It is a command. And the second thing we see in this passage is that believers have confidence that they are in the faith because they keep God's commands. Look with me at verses 21 through 23. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. John states that we have assurance because we keep God's commands and we do what pleases him. And then he gives us two commands. The first one is to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. God's first command is that we believe in Christ. The true Christ, the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of society, not the Jesus we would prefer, not the Jesus of our minds, but the Jesus that is true, the Jesus of God's word, the one who is eternally God, who came in human form and who perfectly atoned for our sin. To believe in Christ means total commitment to him. To believe in Christ is not mere verbal or intellectual affirmation. Just as you can't just talk the talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but must walk the walk, you must do so with Christ as well. It's not enough to just say, I walk in the light. You must walk in the light, and you must be totally committed to him. Submit to the God-man Christ. Second, we are to love one another. Again, we can't believe ourselves Christians if we are, have our hearts closed towards our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Closed to other people who believe and submit to the Jesus of the Bible, but we are commanded to love the church. And then look at, with me at verse 24. John says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. The one who keeps God's commands abides in God. The one who keeps God's commands has God abiding in him. Every true believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the church of Corinth, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? That fits perfectly with what John's saying. Look again at verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he has given, uh, that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This indwelling of the Holy Spirit marks the Christian apart as God's. This sealing of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the first chapter of Ephesians 
is not to be thought of as sealing a Ziploc bag, but the seal that would be on an important letter, or the brand that would be on a first century enslaved person. By this indwelling Holy Spirit that has been given to us by God, God has marked us off as His. It is assurance that we belong to God. Some movements in church history and recently and even here in town have this idea that gotten into their heads that there is a second filling of the Holy Spirit. When Sarah and I lived in a small town in central Kansas, uh, I had an old-fashioned barber that I would go to. And it was kind of like you know, Floyd's Barbershop on Andy Griffith. Uh, it was downtown. He had the barber pole out front. He had the old metal chair that you would sit in. And um, he was also my egg guy, right? Like, so you live in rural Kansas. I would send him a text the day before, hey, I'm going to be in tomorrow for a haircut. And he'd say, I'll have you two dozen eggs waiting because he had a bunch of chickens as well. And, and he was a, a lovely guy. I, I miss our conversations. Uh, he was a Methodist. And we would talk uh, ex- at extent about theology and just different things during our time in his barbershop chair. But one day he said this comment to me. He said, you know, I was saved here in, in, it was in Abilene, in Abilene, Kansas, but I got the Spirit in New Mexico. I mean, I was pretty new in my faith, but I remember thinking, well, is that where he stays? I had to go to New Mexico? What were you doing the rest of the time? But that's a common thought today, that there are some Christians that have the Spirit, and that there are some who don't. This idea may come from the book of Acts. Uh, When we read, you don't have to turn there, uh, but Paul runs across these believers in chapter 19, or they're not believers yet, and um, he asks them about the Holy Spirit, and they kind of say, well, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. We have the baptism of John, and, and Paul explains to them who Christ is. And they get saved, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. What Paul ran across were not believers, true believers in Christ, disciples of Christ, that did not have the Spirit, but he came across disciples of John who had not yet heard the true gospel. And then when they were saved, they received the Spirit. These were not unbelievers who were, at some date after their conversion, received the Spirit, but they were unbelievers who were converted after meeting Paul and received the Spirit at conversion. Friends, as we read the New Testament, the New Testament knows nothing of Christians who do not have the Holy Spirit. Nothing. The New Testament supposes that everyone who is in Christ also has his Spirit. John Stott writes, The gift of the Holy Spirit is a universal Christian experience, because it is, the, is an initial Christian experience. So friend, if you are here and you are saved and you have trusted Christ, you have his spirit dwelling within you. And that should give you assurance. The one who is truly saved is the one who has the Holy Spirit. He loves the church and he strives to keep God's commands. Look at, again at 24. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Christian dwells in God, and God in the Christian. 
Believers have confidence that they are in the faith because of their genuine love for the church. And believers have confidence that they are in the faith because they keep God's commands. So how do we know Jesus lives in us and that we have assurance of faith? Well, I'll lay before you four things that I think we see in this passage. First, trust your belief in the true Son of God. Again, it's not just enough to believe in a Jesus. You must believe in the Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is eternally God. During his earthly ministry, he claimed to be one with the Father. During his earthly ministry, he stated that before Moses was, I am. I am. Ego a me. Who else says I am? I am that I am. And Christ says before Moses ever existed, ego a me. I am. When Thomas realized that Christ rose from the dead, he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. All things were created through Christ, and without him, nothing, anything was made. In Revelation, we see Jesus Christ worshipped by the heavenly throng. Who, whoever in the Bible do we worship that is not God? No one. If we're worshiping something that isn't God in the Bible, it's not good. And we see Christ worshipped. Jesus is truly God, and he bears all the attributes of the Father. He is the second member of the Trinity, but he is also truly man. He came to earth as a man. He had a mother. He was born of a virgin, a virgin that conceived by the Holy Spirit, but he was without sin. And during his earthly ministry, he ate, he slept, he laughed, he wept. He experienced everything that we experienced with the exception of he did not have any sin in him. He was completely sinless. Whereas we inherit our sin nature from our first father, Adam. He was what man was supposed to be from the beginning, sinless and faithful to the father. The son perfectly lived his earthly life in obedience to the father. And then the God-man, Jesus, perfectly atoned for our sin as the perfect lamb of God. You see, in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, because of my sin, I would have to bring this animal victim to the temple to, to take my place. And ceremonially, I would have laid my hand on the head of the animal and had my sins imputed to the animal, and then the animal would be sacrificed in my place. And the Old Testament says, without the sacrifice, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But Jesus Christ... God in the flesh came to earth and offered the perfect sacrifice for my sin. So that as we read in the book of Hebrews, there will never ever be another sacrifice. All the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sins of the world, but Jesus did. You and I inherited and earned a cup of wrath from a holy God. Because sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And we were destined to drink it, but Christ drank it for those who turned to him. Trust in the Jesus of the Bible. He is the fountain of your salvation, and his faithfulness and his power give us assurance. But second, trust the love you have for the church. As we learned last week, hate characterizes the world. And we see this. If you don't believe me, do this test. Go home, get on social media. Turn on your television. 
Watch people cut one another down. Hate, anger, jealousy, factions, quid pro quo, unfaithfulness, gossip will all be elevated and even championed. Watch a sitcom. That characterizes the world. These attributes define the world. But if you have a genuine love for the church, a genuine love for God's people, that would not be there had not God put it there. If you desire to see the church built up, if you desire to see your brothers and sisters stand for truth, if you desire the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you would not have that had not God given it to you. Because you and I were all born dead in sin. That's what the Bible says. That desire can only come from a heart of flesh that has been replaced by the heart of stone that we were born with. The Bible says we're all born dead in sin, that all of us have fallen short of God's glory, that we all drink down sin as though it were water, that there is nothing good that comes out of the heart of man. And so if you have that heart of flesh, if you have a true love for Christ and his bride, it is an indicator that you have assurance of faith. Third, trust your desire to obey and to serve God. The Bible says that no one seeks after God. No one. So just like love, if you have a genuine desire to serve God and to obey him, he has given you that. John says in verse 22 that true Christians keep God's commands. And true Christians desire to please this holy God. And if you have this desire beating within you, it is a gift from God. Do you have a childlike desire to please God? John has already argued that genuine Christians walk in the light. Friend, if you are striving to keep God's commands, the commands we see in the New Testament, if you are striving to know God and to know his word, it is an indicator that you have truly received a new heart and that you have assurance of faith. Fourth, finally, trust the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. John states, that we have God who are Christians and God dwells within us. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures to us that we may understand it. That's why we pray that every morning before we look at his word, that God would illuminate the scriptures to you. And the Spirit is continually conforming us into the image of Christ. Sanctification, the word is the setting aside of something for holy use. And so if you're here and you are a Christian, you have been set aside. You are being set aside. And one day, finally and gloriously, you will be finally set aside for holy use. We have confidence that we are a child of God because of this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we grow in holiness, as we see our lives transformed, and as we grow in God's word, that should give us confidence that we are truly born again. This progressive setting apart by the Spirit gives us confidence, the confidence that we are a child of God, and the confidence to claim the promise of Romans 8 that nothing will separate us from the love of God. When God works in a human life, there will be evidence. 
A tree is known by its fruit. Is there evidence of good fruit in your life? Because when God, if you claim that a holy God has come into your life and has given you a new heart, there will be evidence of that. I've been reading a biography about Carl Henry. He's a brother that went on to be with the Lord, and you may not know that name, but you may know many whom he has influenced. Carl F.H. Henry was what is known as a new evangelical, and so he was a contemporary of Billy Graham. They often say that Billy Graham may have been the face of the new evangelical movement, but Carl Henry was the brains. Carl Henry was a mentor to Al Mohler. Carl Henry is the reason Mark Dever is at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. But Carl Henry was born to a German baker in New York City. His dad was a nominal Lutheran. His mom was a nominal Roman Catholic. And Carl Henry, he grew up to be a sports writer. He was writing about sports until one day God graciously saved him. And when he tells of the account about being in a car in the middle of a thunderstorm, he said it was though God, at that moment when he realized he was a sinner, it was as though God nailed his feet to the ground. And he stopped being a New York City sports writer. And he went on to graduate from Wheaton and these other places, and he went on to write greatly about theology. And I promise you that every single one of you have been influenced by his work, even though you may not know it, if nothing else, because your pastor has. When God got a hold of Carl Henry, there was a difference. As I read his story and as I spoke to others about our testimony this week, I was reminded of my own testimony, uh, of when I was a, uh, a sinful paratrooper in the United States Army and that I was living for myself and doing the things that, that soldiers did and cared nothing about God. And I would have told you I was a Christian because I was from the South and I had been baptized as a, as a child and there was a King James Bible at the bottom of my duffel bag, but it never saw the light of day. And then one day when God got a hold of me, and I was devouring his word. Rather than saying, well, I know I need to read the word because I'm a Christian, I wanted to read his word. I would stay up late at night and read by my headlamp until people fussed at me for being awake past midnight. And then I would go out into this mortar bunker that was covered in sandbags in case we ever got attacked or whatever, and I would, I would, I would weep in the mortar bunker. And those of you who know me know I'm not a crier, but I was seeing like my sin just on full display and that I was a rebel against a holy God. And I remember telling one of my buddies, he said, man, what's happening to you? Like, you used to be so cool. Now you just want to read your Bible. And I remember saying this. I knew nothing of the doctrines of grace. And I said this. I said, it's as though God has a giant boot against my chest and he has pinned me to the ground and I cannot get away. When God comes into a life, there will be evidence of change. Now, maybe some of you, graciously, by God's grace, have the testimony I desire for my children, and you were saved at a young age, and I say, amen, but there will still be a noticeable change in your life, because a good tree bears good fruit. Paul says, examine your heart. Paul never says, look to your baptism, think about your prayer. Remember your genuineness that day. He says, brothers, examine your heart to see whether or not you are in the faith. 
If you do not find these attributes, if you have no love for the church, and I don't mean that you post things on Facebook, I don't mean that you send flowers, I don't mean you tell people how lovely they are, I mean genuine love for the church, a desire to obey God's commands, a genuine love for the biblical Christ, you have cause this morning for alarm. Friends, many in the last couple years have been concerned with the wrong thing when it comes to examination. We are very concerned with the attributes of coronavirus. But how many of us have examined ourselves for the symptoms of a blackened soul and a heart of stone? I do not mean to demean coronavirus. But we will all die a physical death one day. Will you die that eternal death for eternity? Some sitting here apart from God. Why do I say that? I say that because Christ said that. He said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And I will say to you, depart, for I never knew you. So some sitting here are apart from God. Friend, you know you have heard this list and know that you do not truly love Christ or his church. As we walked through this list, you know that your heart is full of selfishness, that it's full of anger, that you are not growing in holiness, that you're the same as you have always been. Now, you may be in denial and you may be examining yourself not according to God's word, but according to other people. But the Bible never says that. The Bible says, examine yourself according to God's word. And to you, I say right now, Christ is calling. Submit to him. For it is the only way you will save yourself from eternal damnation. Because either Christ has drank the cup of wrath you deserve, or it's waiting for you in eternity. Either Christ has been your paschal lamb or your sin is yet to be paid for. If this is you, friend, I urge you, I beg you, turn to Christ. Repent, believe the gospel, for it is the only way that you will live the life that the Bible calls you to live. Father, I pray now for those hearing my voice that do not know you. Father, because we genuinely love them and because we care for them, we pray that they would turn to you, that you would graciously draw them to yourself. Give them eyes to see their need of you. Give them eyes to see their sin. And Father, may they run to you, not walk. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.